You're listening to another life-transforming message from C3 Church San Diego. For more information on our church, go to c3sandiego.com. Hey, the good news is we uh, get into this. Uh, I, I just felt it right when she was praying that some of it, I felt anxiousness stir up right when she was praying. And, and remember, Jesus is the Prince of Peace. And so it's amazing. You know, I could feel it when she said the word counselor. Some of you tightened up. I felt it. Yeah, didn't you feel that? When that was I, a spirit. I was like, mm. So I will tell you what that is. There's so much that the world tries to define that uh, we are going to undo right now. There's no ceiling in our life except the ceiling we put in our life. Nobody has a perfect marriage. You could always grow. No one, as, as people, all growth ha- happens outside the comfort zone. So no one in here has reached their full potential. Just a, whatever you think. We might have just exposed a blind spot right there. But we are going to go after just removing a veil that the enemy tries to put scales over our eyes so we cannot see our blind spots. And we're not coming from a place of weakness, but one of strength. And so I'd love, Brian, if you could give us a little just who you be. Who are you and who why are you, are you here? Yeah. And then, and, and then in that same sentence, recap just a little three-minute overview of last service, if we can even do that, and then we're going to kick it open a new direction. The 30-minute qu- conversation we had in three minutes. That's perfect. Hi, C3. <laughs> What's up, guys? My name is Brian. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist, and uh, when they were talking about, they, they used the word counselor, and they felt a shift. If you want to shut a conversation down with a stranger, when they ask you, what do you do? You say, oh, I'm a therapist. <laughs> Boom. You can see it in their eyes. They are looking for the exit. They don't know what it means. They don't know what you're doing. Most people think I'm like reading your mind or something when you say that. Um, but uh, I've been practicing here in San Diego for about seven or eight years. My wife and I uh, have been married almost 15. And uh, we got married stupid young, real, real young. And about three or four years into our marriage, four or five years into our marriage, we ran into a crisis. We went into a roadblock. Uh, and our marriage, our sense of like, we know what we're doing here fell apart. And that led to me being on another therapist's couch with that therapist asking my wife, do you want to save your marriage? Do you want to stay married? Which is not a conversation I thought I would ever have in my life. And that moment was a game changer for me because it, it was this moment that we both resolved that we were committed to the process. No matter what bones the process had to break, we were going to get we were gonna get healed together. And so it was so transformative, that process was so transformative for us that I actually ended up going back to seminary, studying Bible and theology, and then ultimately getting my graduate degree in uh, clinical psychology. Yeah, that's how I be. You're so smart. He is probably the smartest person I know, just um, so everybody knows. I mean, babe, come on. Hey, I'm right here. Second smartest person I know. Don't worry about it. I'm used to it. She talks about Brad Pitt the same way. (laughs) Anyway. So I would love for you to, that one piece that you talked on identity, even where you were going to school and you married the two, Bible and seminary. Yeah. So I'm in school and I'm studying theology and I'm studying, uh, or biblical hermeneutics theology, and I'm studying clinical psychology at the same time. And there was this game changing moment when you realize, man, the best stuff psychology has to offer is like reading the Bible. There's this moment where, uh, 
postgraduate. So I've, I've already completed my degree and I'm, I'm, uh, I'm in the field and I'm doing some intensive specialized study in trauma specifically. It's one of the areas that I special in. And I remember um, there's this aspect for, for people who are specialists in trauma, we have a category, one of three categories that we, we can categorize any uh, psychological trauma, emotional psychological trauma. So medical trauma, like if you go into triage in the ER, it's different. They use, they use the same word, obviously, in a different way. But all trauma can be categorized in one of three ways, either safety, agency, or responsibility. And what those means is safety, like I'm walking down the street, and it was the middle of the night, and I got attacked in an alley, and now it's broad daylight, I'm with friends, I'm perfectly safe, and I walk by the same alley, and I feel physical fear in my body. So my ability to access safety, to access a sense of safety, has been impaired, psychological trauma. Second one being agency, and man, this is, this is when it starts to get exciting to me. Agency, if, have you ever felt in your life, y'all don't have to raise your hands, even though every single person in the room would, every moment you felt in your life where you felt powerless? Yeah. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. We already know we're talking about trauma. So in our, a part of our identity. I would say the most, the most natural state, our true nature is joy. And part of that joy, we are made in the image of God. Part of that joy is we are agents of change. That's part of our identity. And clinical psychology has finally caught up to the train. And they call it agency. And what they're referring to is the, not the ability to be in control of your life, like we can control everything. We know that we, that's not true. But the felt sense that if I apply myself, that I'm able to impact and influence and shape my life. We call that agency. And so when we go through an experience like I'm really little and my dad leaves and I, I internalize that as I failed or I tried to get him to stay and I couldn't. And there's this pervasive feeling that if I try that, I'm gonna find out that I'm not good enough. I'm gonna find out that I can't actually do it. So we don't take risks, we don't dream big. If we accomplish a dream, we don't move on to the next one because that feels like safe territory now. We already know we're in trauma. The last category of trauma is what we call responsibility. And this, to me, speaks the most closely to our identity in Christ, is this idea that responsibility, and what I, I use the word worthiness. So responsibility being if Kayla is in session and she says, you know what, Brian, you're the worst counselor ever, and she gets up and walks out. That's all data about Kayla. She's never done that, I'm just saying. As, as soon as I hear Kayla's message about me and I think that that's data about me and I think I am not good enough, that my worth is on the table, we already know we're talking about trauma. Because when I'm grounded in my identity in Christ, when I know who I am, I know I belong, I know I'm worthy, they can have all the opinions in the world about me and I'm not gonna get moved. That is a word. Come on. Come on. You almost wanna go down that road again because I like hearing it better the good. second time, but uh, we're gonna have to podcast you a second time. But I want to... Um, I mean, it's, you had so many nuggets that were dropping. And I would love for you to go down the road of, of um, what you talked about, that joy piece. Just one more thought on that, on that joy piece. If we've lost joy, how do we find it again? For people that are numb, people that have lost that vision, that dream, that, that like they used to think big or they used to give it a go, but now they've, for whatever reason they've shut it down, how do we get back to what God's called us to? 
So I, I like to conceptualize all of human experience, everything that you go through, everything that you think, feel, and uh, experience in your body as being on the spectrum between either love or fear. We usually think of the opposite of love as hate. Hate is always a byproduct of fear. So when, when we think about if I feel stuck, if, if dreaming big feels too scary, if I feel like I'm not enough in my friendships, in my relationship, in my marriage, in my family, we already know we're talking about trauma. And here's the part where we get stuck, is we don't trust the message. So if I feel fear, I think that's data about me and not data about my belief system or my experiences or what I've been through. And so I lean away from the experience. I think I'm gonna avoid that now. Versus if we trust our pain, and we follow the pain, the pain will always lead us back to the wound, and Christ in that place has the ability to heal us. Come on. So there's two, there's two of the most common reactions that I see to pain. Either we avoid it, my, my wife feels a little bit sticky today, so I'm just gonna go watch TV in the other room. Yeah, that's me, that's uh, me, I do that. You, yeah. Babe, you've gotten so much better since seeking Brian's care. Thank you, thanks babe. Thanks, that's so sweet of you. <laughs> Or we put on our boxing gloves. So if, if something you're doing at work, a comment you made about my work makes me feel threatened, defensive, not enough, insecure, I'm gonna put on my boxing gloves, I'm gonna bite your head off. Why? Not because of anything you're doing, but because I'm scared. And so when we think about trusting our pain, asking the question, man, I feel, fill in the blank, where's that coming from? Like if, if my coworker is putting me down and I can't shake it off, Man, why am I internalizing their words about me? And I need to name that pain and take it to somebody, not, not your buddy whose life you don't want to be like, right? Like, don't take your pain to that person, right? We want to take our pain to the person whose life we want to emulate. We want to take our pain to our pastors, to our mentors, to the people who are further down the tra tracks than us, and name it, own our vulnerability, and invite Christ into that pain. It becomes, our pain becomes the roadmap, if, if you could say it that way. Oh, oh, we gotta do that exercise, the vulnerability. Mm. <laughs> you wanna do that right yeah, now? Yeah, the three, right now, okay. we have to. They can't podcast that, they gotta right. live it. Oh, that's true. So, last service, we were talking about why is it so difficult to lean into pain? Why is it so difficult to trust our pain? And, and it's a reflection on our culture. So let me just give a little experiment. I've done this with hundreds of people. Um, and I want you to finish the sentence stem that I'm gonna say. So I'm gonna say a sentence and, I'm gonna, and you fill in the blank in your head. Don't shout it out. I know you guys are a very vocal church. It's my favorite thing. <laughs> but not for this moment right here. So I'm just gonna leave a blank and you finish the sentence in your head. Vulnerability is Vulnerability feels like, and here's where we want to get really honest. I grew up believing vulnerability was, so I know this exercise that we just did, it, it kind of came out of left field. You weren't prepared for it. It's not like you were like, we were set up and we were talking about vulnerability. 99% of the time, I've done this hundreds, with hundreds of people, 99% of the time, people finish the sentence, I grew up believing vulnerability was weakness. And that is a traumatic belief. It's a belief that's rooted in the world is unsafe, 
I am powerless and I'm not good enough. Vulnerability becomes weakness when I am insufficient. As soon as I know that I am loved, I belong, I am worthy, I am capable, vulnerability becomes natural. Why did I start talking about that again? Yeah. That, because he asked you to. Yeah, yes, yeah. It was amazing. Okay. Thank yeah, you. but we were talking about it because I see so many people that, and this is why I raged against it and I didn't even have a psychology background, is that I just couldn't handle watching my family be Christian, say our family's for it, and then they, after 32 years, they got divorced. And then I watched all my cousins and we'd all come together and the parents would sit at the big table and talk about how awesome their grades were and everything. And, Thinking to myself, man, our whole family's falling apart generationally, and everyone's just getting together over Christmas saying how rad we all are. And I was like, isn't anyone, see-? but no one in that family wanted to be vulnerable. Everyone put on the Christianese face like we're all such rad Christians. And then we'd go home and see another thing behind the curtain. But I've seen it in many churches, I've seen it in many Christians, to the point where I can't even be friends. To the- it's my stuff I'm walking through with people that can't be real. We can call it vulnerability. I just call it being real. But they, they want to put on this thing like, we have it all together. Well, then I don't need to be your friend because I don't. But the difference is, how do we be the church that lets down those walls and just gets vulnerable or real so then we can move forward? And I just see so many churches get stuck and then they just are reproducing the same thing. I, 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 said, I told Pastor and the reason why I love you guys is how you are on Sunday is how you are on Monday. So we've mirrored our lives after them. And it's so interesting, even when new people, and hey, welcome new people, but hey, listen, we, we, don't, we wanna be an authentic, vulnerable, real church. And we all got ish. Why can't we just like get past it? What advice can you give to speak into our church as a whole so we can quicken that or heal with whatever blind spots we have in that area? So becoming a community that's comfortable with vulnerability means becoming a community that is comfortable with our ish being aired. We, uh, we got to meet with another small group of leaders uh, recently, and one of the things that came up, we were talking about privacy deepens paralysis. As we become scared, the first thing we want to do is isolate and hide, which reinforces whatever is keeping us scared. It builds this little hedge of protection around that fear, and it keeps that fear really safe. And so when we find leaders, mentors, friends who are really mature and grounded, and we say, okay, I'm gonna make a discipline of bringing my ish to them on a regular basis, whether I feel like I've got it or not. Because here's the thing, like if you do some intensive work, like let's say you, do, you spend the next three months in therapy, and you do this incredible work, and you're like, yes, I finally conquered that mountain. And I ask you, is there, I hope I'm not overusing this word, is there ish in your life right now? The answer is always yes. Of course, it, you've reached, you've gone deeper. It's new. You can't conquer this mountain until you climb the, the last one already. But we already know that, that that refinement, that that process of sanctification never ends. So is it a discipline? It's a yes or no answer. Is it a discipline in my life? Can I ask the question, one of the questions we had planned, or is that too planning-ish for oh, you? <laughs> She's such a planner. Okay. Take your number six and do it, babe. <laughs> Well, I think it brought, it, it's a good segue going off of what you just said, because even for my husband and I, just we were hitting a wall in communication, 
And we just, that's the reason we ended up back in Brian's office, to be really transparent. Uh, a few months ago, we just, the same communication pattern, pattern kept coming up, no matter what the issue was, no matter what the disagreement was about, same pattern. And so I would love for you to speak into that, if anyone else is facing that here today, and what um, blind spots you see in couples in communication that holds them back from stepping into the next level, like the next layer. <laughs> Absolutely. Here, I'm here. Help so I'm going to tell you the number one, the number one myth I think people bring into their marriages and why this keeps us trapped more than anything else. Y'all want to hear that? Yeah. All right. So more times than not, I, um, I wonder if I say this statement too strongly because I think I like, I like scare people, but I don't really enjoy premarital counseling. I do a lot of it because it's helpful. But 90% of the time, there's 10% where they come in real and raw, and it's amazing. 90% of the time, they come in with these rose-colored glasses. They're actually not looking to do therapy or counseling. What they're really looking to do, I want like a take a personality test. I just want you to tell me how compatible we are. And there's value in that. We can learn about what does a healthy marriage look like? What does healthy communication look like? But we don't actually want you to assess our health. We're engaged and we wanna stay in this season of rose cutler glasses. And so what I do is I tell people right off the bat, if you're looking for um, like a workshop or a book or like a fun class, I'm not your guy. You can do that cheaper and much easier scheduling from your living room. Um, but if you're looking to really open up your heart and, and find out what's like, what's causing us to attract and what's causing us to polarize, then, then we can do that here. Right. So what we end up discovering in our first, um, sometimes it's our first three months, sometimes it's, it takes a lot longer than that, maybe one to three years, is that uh, there's a wake-up call moment in marriage. And you realize this relationship's primary purpose, it's prime, the thing that, if, if, if your marriage is not you or your spouse, it's your marriage, it's a third entity. The thing your, your marriage is most concerned with is your growth, not your happiness. Right. Any married people know that's true? <laughs> marriage is the most honest mirror you will ever have in your life. So when we get into marriage and our communication starts to get polarized, it's because I got into marriage and things got rocky and I projected the myth that marriage is supposed to be fun, easy, and happy. And so that's how I know if I got the right marital partner Man, so many people come into my office and, and they won't name it explicitly, but deep, deep down they believe this is hard because I, I picked the wrong person. So, no, this is hard because you got ish that you brought into the marriage. In a, in a sense, there's no such thing as marriage issues. There's only individual issues and now I have to deal with them, right? That's a word. So, I'm sorry, I'm bunny trail. I'm, I'm gonna bring it home now. So what happens in marriage is we get, into, we get into this cycle and this dance of the way that I'm used to getting my emotional needs met. Maybe when I was younger, if, I, if mom felt far away or if I needed some reassurance, what I would do is I would withdraw and mom would notice and then she would come to me and she'd rescue me, right? And that's perfectly appropriate for a six-year-old. 100%. Sorry. We said we didn't want a private counseling session in front of everyone, okay? We no, this is helping that. me, babe. I'm, I'm being, I'm vulnerable. I'll take it. Give me more. Give me more. 
And so when we think about running into these roadblocks where instead of being vulnerable with you and saying, oh man, I'm, I'm noticing that I feel kind of defensive right now. I'm not sure what's going on. Or I'm noticing that you look upset. Can you tell me what's wrong? I want to reassure you. Instead of disarming and showing our vulnerability to our partner, we armor up, we show defensiveness, we attack them, we withdraw and cut them off. What we're doing is our marriage is tapping us on the shoulder saying, time to grow, guys. That we can't, marriage, the marriage relationship is this unique emotional proximity in our life where like if Kayla's my friend, it's really easy to have a great friendship and keep her at arm's length. Man, as soon as, as Kayla becomes my partner, it doesn't work anymore. And that's, I think God designed it that way. It is a crucible and an incubator. It is both the thing that brings our pain to the surface and it's also intended when done right, it becomes that, that greenhouse, that safe place where we can actually heal these childhood wounds. Come on. Well, single people, I just take it down that road because a lot of single people are either, you know, who am I looking for? And, you know, that concerned with any development on themselves, the conversation I'm having is, yeah, so-and-so. They're just not this, they're not that. And it's amazing. What advice do you have for single people that want to get married, that want to find that Mrs. Wright? Man, when I get to talk to single people inside the church, the first thing I'm always compelled to say is, I am so sorry. <laughs> no, not, not for your singleness. That's not what I'm saying. I am so sorry for how the church, and not, I'm not talking about C3, I'm talking about the big C church, has yeah, treated right. singleness. We have this attitude in our community that if you're not married, you're somehow subpar, you're somehow like on reserves, like someday God will call you to the front lines and use you. And I think what we do... Come on, go there, preach. I'm glad he just... That was a good sound that was coming from that. You're going with me. Not all communities would be able to go with me here. And so what we do is we take this message that, okay, someday my life will be whole, and so when I find the right person, I'll know what wholeness feels like. Instead of saying, as soon as I find wholeness, the right person is going to be attracted to my life. Well, I guess we hit a chord there. So what would you, I hear a lot, with, whether it's anxiety around that topic or loneliness, what, what can you speak into that on? Man, there's a degree to which we have to um, validate a, a normal human um, development. Most people, not all people, most people usually in their 20s, sometimes as late as their 30s, most people will have the impulse to bond with one person for the rest of their life. They'll have the impulse to get married. Most people will. I think it's really important that we validate a degree of loneliness because somebody who's in singleness doesn't have that unique, romantic, committed, sexual bond with another person. And so there's a degree to which we can say, there's not necessarily something wrong here that you're feeling this ache because you were, you were born for that. There's another degree to which we are hoping that my, I will feel whole when I find that person. And as, as long as we are entertaining that belief system, we're probably doing two things. We're probably A, keeping ourselves um, alienated from the people we would wanna attract the most. Do you guys know, any single people in the room, do you guys know that your most attractive quality, I don't care how often you do Pilates, I don't care what kind of car you drive, 
how big your bank account is, your most attractive quality is joy. Yeah. I didn't know that. As a young person, I did not know that information. Uh, I got really lucky. My wife and I found each other as really wounded people, and I was lucky enough to find a woman who wanted to go through the trenches with me and to get healed together after getting married. But it's a lot easier if you start that journey. Own your wholeness, own your joy, and you start that journey now as a single person. Yeah, and, and I really think it's so important just to know that, you know, the enemy doesn't want us to do any work in this area, develop, he would much prefer us go in blind, you know, don't lean to what God's saying about relationships, uh, equipping us. You know, there's a world out there that's trying to define marriage. There's a world out there that's trying to devi define chaos. Uh, how, how do we as Christians be the light in that world so the world doesn't have the loudest voice, but actually this community can impact them? So my wife and I talk a lot about the culture of our home. You know that you live in a culture, we live in the culture of the US, and that culture has some amazing uh, beauty, and it's got some real raw weakness. It's got some real um, toxic belief systems in it too. We also live in the culture of the West Coast, and of California, and of Southern California, and of San Diego, that we live in a very specific social culture that we have zero control over. The, the culture that you send your third grader off into in the morning as they go to school, you don't get to control that. The only thing we have control over, and, but the miraculous part is we have 100% control over, is the culture within our home. And so when we think about, when we think about what is the culture of our home, that is the most powerful gospel I think that we can preach to the world. You guys really want to preach a loud gospel, learn to love your spouse really well. Wow. Love them vulnerably and selflessly. If you want to preach a gospel at school, you never have to mention Jesus. All you have to do is respond to your child with patience wow. in front of the other parents. I'm like, man, there's something different. And then as you build relationship and they realize that you are obsessed and in love with Jesus, they are going to connect the dots all by themselves. It's going to happen naturally. Oh. How good is that? So good. Is there an altar call right now? So, man, question number three on your last crazy one. How do we raise kids in a sexually perverse world mm. that I don't have to have stress or anxiety about that influence jacking my kids up? I don't know if there's ever achieving zero stress and anxiety. I have stress and anxiety. I have a six and an eight-year-old daughter, um, daughters. And I probably have a mitigation of anxiety every single day when they go to school because they come home and they say, you know, this is what Sally watches on TV and they are exposed to other people and they're in this world. I, it takes me back to, I think the most powerful weapon is we have is the culture of our home. You know, there's this thing when we are working with um, a couple uh, who's going through, who's trying to heal from infidelity. And there's a part of that process that's really important is the way the information is disclosed to the family. So let's say I had a ton of just really, really painful hidden behaviors and, and my wife needs to know about it. We, we set up the safest container possible and we facilitate that disclosure. What if I have kids? We have to judge 
at what developmental stage, what is appropriate for them to know about those things. And sometimes we have what's called a forced disclosure, where let's say you are um, a, a high profile person, which I've worked with, and, and now this is actually gonna, this is gonna be aired. So we would rather not tell your, your six-year-old about what you guys are going through, but they're gonna hear it from schoolmates or from the television, so we have to hear it from us, is we have a degree raising kids in this culture, which is sexually saturated, it's a degree of forced disclosure. It's we have to arm our kids probably before we're really ready to, probably before we would prefer to. We have to equip them with a Christ-saturated culture at home that names, it names what they're gonna face, but it names it informed. So when you say, man, it's possible, Jimmy, that um, now that you're going into fifth or sixth grade, it's possible you're gonna hear your friends talking about looking at these kind of pictures. And we tell them, this is why we don't look at those kind of pictures, because it, it uh, affects our brain, because it, it lies to us, it gives us this false sense of intimacy, a false sense of worthiness that will ultimately leave you alone and empty. And we start to equip them. Would I want to tell my fifth grader about pornography? No, it wouldn't be my choice. I wish we lived in a culture where they didn't have to find that out, that that exists until they were an adult, but we don't live in that culture. So we have to be informed enough to know how do I appropriately tell my third, fourth, fifth, sixth grader about what they're gonna face out there so that they can be, when they see it, they don't see the allure of pornography. They see, oh man, that's dangerous. Dad told me about that, yeah. Wow. Let, let's hit this subject, and whether one of the couples, or like I'm numb, or my spouse is numb, they don't even want to go to church, they've kind of lost their faith, or lost their way, or their job crushed them, or they've been offended, or just I can tell my spouse is numb. What kind of hope do you give for people that have tried just everything, and the husband or the wife says, oh, I'm, I don't want to go to counseling? What, what, do we, what do we do to navigate those situations? So we, uh, we have this impulse in marriage and in relationships in general, but it really comes full service it, uh, in marriage, is that we, we accidentally fall into the trap of believing that it's my job to change my partner instead of it is my job to change our partnership. And the reason that distinction is important to me is because if I am married to somebody who doesn't want to go to church or doesn't want to go to counseling, my partnership with them will change if I grow. The, the relationship and the dynamic we have cannot stay the same if I grow as a person. So if I go to church and I make my mission, my mission is to be such a beacon of joy and light in your life that you're gonna have to blind yourself to ignore the fact that there's something real, and I stop trying to change you, our partnership will change. Sometimes, and this is the minority, sometimes that change actually leads to the partner pushing you further away because it's too painful to be that close to Christ. And you know what, that's a painful thing, but you have to let them push you away. As soon as you try and control them, you are no longer loving them. Yeah. Say that again, say that last line. Going back to that wound of responsibility, 
when that, that responsibility can come to the surface in a lot of ways. It can come to the surface where I feel shame because I feel rejected by you or because you're disappointed to me. It can also come, I feel fear because you're going down a path that I want you to go. And when we're talking about an adult partnership, we're talking about love looks like respecting that person's agency, always. So the second I try and control you, I have actually stopped loving you well. Wow, yeah. incredible. Amazing. Let's give, let's give that a hand. Oh my gosh. I think, yes. Are you okay over there? Okay. Your mind's blowing. It's good. I'm just Everyone getting, take I'm going to go do an altar call. Come on. We're going to do an altar call in a minute. I have one last kind of focus. I know we're kind of jumping around a lot, um, but we're really hitting the things that we feel that God's highlighting through the whole thing. Um, but for people who have been in past painful relationships, even including divorce, and it's ended in divorce, and they want a new, healthy, uh, God-intended relationship, what would, what would they do to make sure the cycles that happened in the past, whether they're responsible or not, don't come back in the next relationship? Or what can they do to help prevent what happened here to bring into here, or the baggage that happened here to be carried into here? Yeah, and give us a real stat, because I've heard that once you're divorced, it goes up like, you know, sevenfold or whatever, something crazy. It does, yeah. So um, I, don't, I don't remember if it was this service. I think it was 9 a.m. You, you referenced the divorce rate within the church is the same as the divorce rate in the world, which breaks my heart. The fact that we have an alive relationship with Christ and we don't know how to model that through our relationships. I think that's the easiest. Man, s stop taking preaching classes. Just get your marriages right, and we are going to change the world. It's a word. But. Yeah, I, speaking into that, I would say less podcasts and more work. More work. It's like, oh, yeah, I just listened to another podcast. Well, what are you going to do? Yeah. I don't know yet. Put the work in. So when we... Um, I lost my train of thought. You're going to take us down that road. My wife just asked that question about not bringing their baggage in. Yes. So when we think about uh, second divorces now have about a 70% divorce rate, and third divorces have about an 80%, 85% divorce rate. Why? And there's a lot of factors that go into that. There's a lot. So maybe I was 22 and flat broke when I got married the first time, and now I'm 37, and I actually have a little wealth to my name. Uh, and we keep those things separate, it becomes much easier. There's a lot of infrastructure around why second marriages fail more often. I would say um, the most potent, the most relevant reason is that they're easier to leave. A second marriage, so if, if I get married at um, 25, 26, 27, and by 33 I have a kid, or by 36 I have two kids, something like that, and, and we're going through a hard time, just the fact that we share children is gonna be this, this little bit of extra stickiness. It's like, man, it would be, the idea of leaving feels so good. There's this fantasy in my brain about how awesome it would be, but I also know it would change these kids' lives, and there's that extra stickiness. Second marriages, often, we don't have that stickiness. There's not this other infrastructure around us. We also have, and I don't actually think this is that unique, to second marriages, we also have the trauma that we bring in with us from our first marriages. So obviously, I say obviously at the, the, the train is like gone down the tracks of everything I've said beforehand. Um, obviously the most powerful thing we can do for our second marriage is to do personal work 
from our first marriage, ownership, ownership, ownership. If I tell you the story of my first marriage and it's a blame story, I don't yet know the story. Wow. So when we think about, when we think about being unequally yoked, usually unequally yoked does not mean emotionally unequally yoked. We tend to, and a lot of people are gonna not like me for saying this, we tend to find people with similar levels of emotional health. Now, they might be in a very different place than me spiritually or a very different place from me in their physical fitness or something. There's lots of ways we can be unequally yoked, but emotional health, we, 95% of the time, we find somebody of the same emotional level of health. And so once we're into that marriage, it's super easy. Oh, well, if they would just be like me, it would be better. Or if they had just been willing to work as hard as I was willing to work, it would have been better. And in some cases, obviously that's true. In cases where a spouse is abandoned, 100% that's reality, but you still have to do the hard, vulnerable self-analysis of how did I get into a situation where I was blind enough to, to partner up with somebody. It's like maybe, maybe I'm not as broken as I'm afraid of, but my people picker is broken. Does that make sense? So yes. Individual work, getting really raw and vulnerable with your pastor, with your mentor, with your coach, really, really raw and vulnerable. What was it like? The more you can uncover the way that you participated in what got you to that end, the more prepared you are for your second marriage. Great. So, I have a question. Well, we, babe, babe. Okay. Are you going to ask a question? No, it's just going to be, hey. Thank you, thank you. I know we could go on all morning like this. I just want to know. I love the chemistry on this side of the room. It's so good. We'll make out later. It's fine. But <laughs> the, the thing is, with um, don't get distracted. Don't get distracted. With, if you could leave us, you know, we are. We, we say we're a hope dealership. Mm. Jesus is our hope. Where can you leave us with that solution, that hope? And because we want to pray for people and open up the altar, but. Give us that seminary slash world that you've learned, explosion encounter. So here's, here's one of the things that um, I try and share as often as possible because I think it's a game changer. If you have pain, fear, shame coming up in your life, it doesn't mean that something's gone wrong. It doesn't mean that you're broken. It doesn't mean that your marriage is failing. In fact, it probably means that your marriage is working because it is reflecting back to you these pain points that you're avoiding this belief about yourself or about your expectations of how you get your needs met in a relationship that you are needing to update your software. And so when we go through pain and shame, we ought to, or not pain, when we go through shame and hopelessness, we already know that we're dealing with trauma and a lie. Hope is the natural byproduct. Did I turn this off? Okay. Hope is the natural byproduct of right understanding. When I know my right standing with God, when I accurately understand my relationship to God and his relationship to the world, I always get led to hope. So if you are going through if you're going through a season in your life where in your work, your family, your friendships, where you feel defeated, we already know we're dealing with a lie. You know, uh, I've heard, something I hear a lot is that um, emotions lie. And I actually wouldn't say it that way. I think I understand what, what we're saying when we say that, but I think emotions always tell the truth about what I most deeply believe. What I most deeply believe about myself, 
and about how to get my needs met from other people. If you are going through pain, fear, hopelessness, your heart is telling you you are carrying something that you are not built to carry. And hope, here's the, here's the kicker, man. You can, you can hold on to this when it gets really, really dark. That I know if I face this pain, the other side is always hope. Come on. So good. How good is this session? Is this good for anybody? Honestly, honestly. I, I think, you know, as we, as we land this, and, you know, I want to open up the altar call just to pray, is knowing that, you know, love conquers. Love, you got to understand, Jesus was sent by his Father to die on a cross for our sins. Love conquered evil. Love wins. In the context that who sins their only begotten son for you and I, for our sin and shame. But everything that we're walking through, the devil wants to do everything he can, knowing that if he can mess up, even when you're single. He, he tried destroying my life when I was just single, getting sexual perversion, getting into relationships, causing soul ties, which I never, never even heard about. All these things being raised in a Christian home just to sabotage my future, my legacy, to take away dreams. But understanding when I got, gave my life to Christ, that he already paid the price for all that stuff. But if the devil could try to remind us to live in that perpetual place of frustration, condemnation, that shame keeps us so bound up, we never walk in victory. So I know a whole lot of Christians that know Jesus, but don't walk in victory. Because that's how good of a liar the devil is. You know, he's called the great deceiver, not because he sucks at it. It's because he even convinces those in the church that we're even more jacked up than a world. And I just want you to know this morning, the reason why we had Brian is just to give uh, you a sense that one, to break the lies that whether it's counseling or asking for help is a sign of weakness, to me it's a sign of strength. One of the greatest things we can do, if we're gonna be a fresh, real, powerful church, is just knowing that none of us were raised by parents that had it all together. We took on values and beliefs and all these things as we were in our first seven years of life. And then we anchored them in the next seven years of life. And then we've been living them out since we've been a teenager. And it doesn't matter how you came into this house. It doesn't matter how you came into marriage. It doesn't, wherever you're at, it only matters what God is revealing to you through his son, Jesus, that he is the love and the light of the world, that he came, died on a cross for you and I, and all you have to do is, is accept him as your Lord and Savior. He's more than just our Savior, which is when we accept him as our savior, that means we've shifted, we've given up our, he's taken our sin. We have eternity with him in heaven. But when we can understand what lordship looks like, he has given us power. He's given us, we are made in the image of our creator. No one else has the emotions, animals, every mammal out there doesn't have the cognitive function that we have but he's given us free will. We're not puppets on a string. And I'm telling you, you want an epic marriage? Let's put the time in. Let's put the work in. 
Let's get the tools, the resources. Let's ask for prayer. Let's humble ourselves and just say, you're right, I don't have together. But you know what? When you do it, when you do life with people that we're getting wins that we can show our kids how to live. Yeah, your mom and dad went through this, but this is what love does. We loved one another through it. We walked through the valley and we did it together. We weren't above going to get work. We weren't above asking for help. We weren't above asking for prayer. We gotta fight for the things that are important to us. And I'm telling you, there's a world that needs to know the gospel, but they don't want another person preaching at them. They just are looking. You might not know this, but people are watching us. Neighbors are watching us. Coworkers are watching us. Our kids are watching us. We might be the only Jesus they ever see. Thanks for listening. To find out more about our pastors, team, and what we do at C3 San Diego, go to c3sandiego.com. 